our liberties we prize our rights we will maintain we know that's what we say but is that what we do oh I feel like this bill is targeting a very vulnerable population, children. Think about your kids, for those of you who have children. What if you were not able to provide for them the way you wanted to because of life? Because sometimes life is difficult, things happen we can't control. You're taking away something that can help them. I want you to think about a child that you care about. This impacts violence and our health. I ask you to vote no. Feeding kids' bodies also makes it so much easier to feed their minds. It's very hard to focus and to learn when you're hungry. It's hard to work. It's hard to get ahead. You've heard the statistics. Too many Iowans are hungry, rural and urban alike. This bill would make it harder for them to apply. Fraud is negligible. We like to say that Iowa feeds the world. Shouldn't that start right here at home with our own people? Rika, we're about to launch our fourth podcast. Can you believe it? It is amazing. We've gotten this far, Jules. <laughs> yes. Especially with my travel schedule. Yeah. Sorry about That's that. That's all right. A couple liberty-loving moms. Having That's a, us. Having a podcast time. Exactly. So, folks, if you have been paying any attention to the news about some of the very draconian measures that lawmakers were considering applying to the SNAP program, which is the food assistance program in Iowa, um, you may have heard about things like taking sliced cheese off the list and any meat but frozen meat. Some of those provisions have been discarded, but there are still many terrible ones in that bill, Julie. Yes, I think there's an underlying narrative that the people that are pushing these measures are really doing so for show. And I wasn't wasn't convinced of that. I thought maybe that that, that was a major piece of the mindset of some people. But I really think, after talking to our guest today, a lot of these people know doggone well that this is just an act. And in our episode today, we're going to interview somebody who actually works with people that would be impacted by this bill. Directly. And in fact, someone who has herself been impacted by poverty growing up. Um, and this is Anne Bacon, and she is the Chief Executive Officer for Impact Community Action Partnership in Des Moines. It's one of 16 community action agencies around the state, and they help low-income people in three core areas, which are housing, food assistance, and utilities. Exactly. Well, let's hear from Ann Bacon, the executive director. I always start with explaining to people 
people that Impact Community Action was born out of the war on poverty in 1964. There are 16 community action organizations across the state of Iowa, and actually most places in the United States have a community action. And each community action is different because it's built and maintained on the needs of local communities. And we focus our work on essential needs, increasing access to essential needs. Um, uh, when I want to be as raw as possible about it, I say essential needs are those things that can kill you if you don't have them. In Iowa, that's utilities, housing, and food. Let's that's start with that question. Why is it possible that people can't meet their basic needs? I'm glad to start there because we start every interview with a prospective employee with the same question, which is why are people poor? It's arithmetic. If the amount of money you need is less than the amount of money you have, that creates poverty. Exploitation plus arithmetic equals poverty. We have giant systemic issues that unfortunately at some level were designed on purpose and to maintain a divide in our country. The anti-poverty movement for many years has focused on the people in poverty and what might be wrong with them. And do they not work enough? Do they not go to school enough? Do they not care enough? Are they, do they have no work ethic? Focusing on that instead of on the actual creation of an economy where 40% of our jobs don't pay enough or provide the benefits needed for a family to be sustained. So tell us about this new legislation that would type the means testing to receive food aid, food aid in particular, right? Food aid and Medicaid. That would tighten the financial means of families and also penalize people for having two cars, two used cars, if they're worth $15,000 or more. What is going to be the impact of this, do you think? The impact of that particular bill will remove people from the assistance. There's no doubt about it. And it won't be because they don't need the assistance. It will be because it's more complicated to get and more complicated to keep. The means testing and the bill's kind of been a moving target like many bills. They've changed the amount for the means testing. But typical means testing, which is just how much money do you make, is going to be there no matter what. But asset testing, yeah, in our economy, when you're talking about families that likely need two cars because of both people working, it can they can get above that amount pretty quickly. The other thing I want to note is to qualify at all for SNAP, to get that food assistance, you have to be below 130% of the federal poverty guideline. In 2023, 133% of the federal poverty guideline for a family of four is $39,900. So these are people who are extraordinarily cash poor. And so the concept that we have to tighten up the fact that a few people that might make 140% or 150% might be slipping in, that's not because those people don't need help. That, that is that's just incorrect. And it will have a negative impact on the families in Iowa. There's no doubt about it. Off the top of my head, I can think of so many examples of how the people who are in poverty are trapped. And I'm sure you can add to this list, but just the sales tax alone is so regressive that somebody who's making less than $10 an hour pays the same amount of tax as a millionaire. What do you think people don't get about living in poverty? 
the question is whether or not they don't get it or if it's willful ignorance, I think, at mm-hmm. some point. But I do, I have met people who really don't get it. Most of us were sold an American dream that included if you work hard enough and make the right choices, you will be successful economically. And that is just not true. We have a lot of proof that's not true. But since anyone of means in this country was raised on that, and they therefore believe that they are special and they earned what they got through hard work, therefore assume people who aren't in a good financial position, there was something wrong. They made bad choices. They didn't take advantage of what was in front of them. All those myths we have about people in poverty, instead of, again, turning to look at just the basic mathematics of poverty and understanding that I'll go back to my earlier statement that 40% of our jobs pay less than what it takes to get by. If we waved a magic wand and all of those people filling those current positions could qualify and could do the jobs that were above that, who is going to do those jobs? And do we not think that all work is good work? Do we not believe that all work is worthy work that should be able to sustain a person and or a family? And so I think that's part of it is we have some sort of caste system in our country around work and around income and around worth that's all tied together. And we look at jobs and the people of economic privilege are very demanding around inexpensive fast food, for example. I've heard all kinds of outcries recently about how long it takes people to drive through at Taco John's or I had to wait 10 minutes for my hamburger at McDonald's. A dollar hamburger, it shouldn't even be a possibility. But the fact that it is a possibility is because of the labor that is being exploited through low wages from the birth of that cow to when it ends up on a burger. Whether it's in our small family farm economy, whether it's in the meatpacking industry, whether it's in the the logistics industry to the workers flipping the burger, there's a lot of people not getting paid appropriately to make that dollar hamburger. One of the things about this legislation, which I find so laughable, is the way in which it stigmatizes and almost tries to diminish the self-worth of people who are getting food aid, like the fact that they can only buy, what is it, frozen meats and not fresh meats under this new bill. And something about the vegetables they bought, like cheese. Oh, yeah, cheese cannot be sliced because that's too much of a privilege for people who aren't working. And I would say slice their own damn cheese. Yeah, originally, originally it was very draconian. Originally, it was completely ridiculous, the restrictions. Mm -hmm. And they have, over time, let go of more. I think the most recent bill prevents people from getting soda, candy, and salty snacks. Salty snacks. And um, snacks are okay. I guess. I don't I have Hostess I don't know how much salt in my Triscuits, but my oh, God. I don't know. But it it does. It that says it sends a message that your choices should not be yours. And you are likely to make decisions we don't like. But what the research has shown us over and over again that families using SNAP pretty much 
buy the same stuff that those of us that aren't on Snap buy. There's some slight differences in the top five. The what's number two for people of means might be number four for people in poverty and such, mm-hmm. but it's very, very small, the differences. And we are exactly the same people off Snap and on Snap for salty snacks. It completely says people of means are okay eating these foods, but you are not. And it makes an assumption that people are going to make bad choices. And people with SNAP, they still make pretty good choices through the research. But isn't the irony there that that some of the stuff that they are limiting is stuff that's much healthier for people? So Yeah, they took that out, though. I got to tell you. They took that out. They took that out. I mean, they had right. to. They were, they had to. There was no way it was ever going to pass that way. But the fact that anyone even started there is worrisome around our attitudes towards people who are financially struggling. And the fact that it was removed because politically they knew it couldn't make it through. Some of it is very performative. Mm-hmm. The federal government has never, ever agreed to any food restrictions on SNAP. So you have to get a waiver. You have to get a federal waiver to put these things in place. So we know, they know that when they, if they put this forward, the federal government's going to say no. They've built it into the bill that if the, if the feds say no, then that just goes away. So to me, that's performative and purposefully saying this is what we think and feel about people who need food assistance. So the title of the podcast is What the Hell Happened to Iowa? How would you answer that question, Anne, from your vantage point? I think about it all the time. I was born and raised in Iowa. The first governor I can remember is Governor Ray. And so when I look across the trajectory of what has happened in Iowa around how we think of our neighbors, how we think about refugees, how we approach any of those topics, there seems to have been a shift in identifying our moral compass around who's worthy and who's not worthy and who we're willing to invest in and who we are not willing to invest in. And this has nothing to do with food, but I think one of the better examples of that was the recent move around Afghani refugees. Back in the day when we worked with people in Southeast Asia and did relocation efforts, it was very robust. The system was had a huge amount of wraparound, had a huge amount of making sure that people came in with connections and support system and everything there. When I saw what happened with the most recent work, it doesn't seem like that was there. And so when that happened, I think it was in the 70s with the Southeast Asian refugee movement, it didn't feel like it was a ploy to find more workers. It felt like we did that because it was the right human thing to do. And I feel like we've gotten away from that and gotten more into a how can we protect health or whether it is the extreme balance being carried in the state in money that could be invested. It appears that we have put our emphasis on people of means and protecting that. I just saw an article, I don't even remember where it came up, where they're talking about bringing a bill forward to eliminate income and corporate tax in Iowa. I'm just a little stunned that people don't agree that the taxes are for common good. And without them, we don't have very much common good. So. I think 
it feels like that's what has happened, that we have shifted. We used to be very purple. Now we're not. And that feels like it has had an impact. And I can remember the other thing, politically speaking, and this is an Ann Bacon thing, not an impact thing. It's an Ann Bacon thought. But I don't remember a time where the party line was so aligned consistently across votes. We just did a reconstruction of the government bill that if it had any amendments, they were not meaningful amendments. And there were people saying, we're not going to accept any amendments on this bill. So we had a massive reconstruction of our government and all the services in it, and lawmakers just passed it without any real digging in. So it does feel very partisan and that it's not just partisan. People are so locked in to their side that they don't even question. Moving budgets forward, no numbers in them. There's just a number of things that appear like camps aren't just camps even. They're just locked in. And it feels very much there's no reasoning with that kind of monolithic move. So here's a question about the politics of all of that. One of the things that I had thought we might try to do with a show like this is look at the economic backgrounds of the people who are being elected to make policy and who are imposing these very harsh right-wing measures. But on the other hand, when you look back at someone like Joni Ernst, for example, her whole talk was about growing up wearing bread bags over her boots because they couldn't afford proper shoes, Mm -hmm. right? So why is it that people are not voting for, and why is it that working people and low-income people who grew up that way are not able to better understand the plight of other low-income people, especially when they're running and serving an elective office? Yeah, there's a couple... The yeah. There's a couple things that play into that, and it goes back to that concept of the American dream, and, and is it a thing where if I could do it, you should be able to do it, with mm-hmm. into account any of the privilege that might have come along with that. I grew up in a very working class family. My mom was a single mom for a period of time. There there were times it was rough, but I had parents who could, we lived with my grandparents. And so that gave us a boost up. We were Anglo, that gave us a boost up. We were Christian, that gave us a boost up. And I was raised to recognize that. But Other people don't believe it, and they believe that somehow they had the magic and they got out of poverty, therefore everyone should be able to do it without looking at not only what was different in their life than in the folks who aren't able to do it, but not also recognizing the difference between poverty in the 50s and 60s and poverty today and the extent extreme expanse between those who have and those who have not. That gulf has just gotten bigger and bigger. My analysis most recently of what a living wage is and what it takes to get by and what a typical family is making in central Iowa, the gulf is about $30,000 a year. And so to get from where they are now to cross a $30,000 gap, I'm not even sure what career they would have to get into. It's like the thing I hear a lot is for a period of time, we were really pushing CNA jobs. One, because we really need CNAs, but also because the party line was it's a pathway to good income because you can become an RN as if that was a straight path that everyone had access to. And if a person's working full-time as a CNA, 
there's no way they're going to be able to go back to school and at, at the rate of work they have to do, at the time of day they have to work, at the cost of that schooling, let alone the just the the academic aptitude needed. It's just a lot of false ideas that people don't think through and they don't put the pieces together. I don't know all of Joni Ernst's story, but I can guarantee that she had a good education. I can guarantee that she had some access to education beyond her high school. I can guarantee, I don't know, maybe she got the GI Bill because I understand that she served, which would have helped with the cost of her education. All those things. There's a lot of things to take into account for why some people escape poverty and some people don't. When I talk about my own story, because I have lived experience with poverty, is on the outside, it looks good now. I still carry student loan debt of trying to get out of poverty. I had all kinds of debt that I've had to deal with, and I'm still not to that level playing field. I was going to ask you about student debt. So many people who, my age, who went to college, had some student debt, don't realize how different student debt is today than when it was when we were, I paid my college loans, why can't they? Mm -hmm. that. What do people need to understand about student debt? Yeah, there's a few things. One is the cost of college is just exponentially larger, and therefore those debt loads are higher. The other thing that comes with that is the available work and the available pay level coming out of college is not keeping pace with either the cost of the education or the number of people that have gone down that road. And I personally, anybody I think that is between the ages of 19 and 60 were sold that you need to go to college. You must go to college. If you don't go to college, you're never going to make it. And so there was a big push and a lot more people went and that's great, but there, there are not enough paying jobs to take care of those folks. And we have a lot of graduates without jobs that meet their basic needs, let alone then cover that level of debt. One paradox, one thing that really ticks me off is that the new mantra of the right is don't go to college. It's an elitist institution and people don't need that and they get all kinds of debt as a result of it. So they should do with menial jobs or jobs that you work with your hands and they'd be much better off. But ultimately, doesn't that do two things, at least two things I can think of right off the bat? One of which is they're less educated, so they're less educated about how the system works against low-income people, right? And then the other is that they really don't have the opportunities for jobs that help set the agenda for the nation Correct. because they don't have a college degree. Yeah, where I come from on it always is all work is good work. Every type of physical effort and mental effort that contributes to society should be well paid. And when that's the case, then people can pursue what they're good at, what they're passionate about, and feel confident they'll be able to make a living. We're not there. Since we're not there yet, saying you don't have to get an education, you can make a good wage. And there are some great wages out there for welders. There's some great wages out there in other fields. But I've yet to see something in the service industry that's going to make someone a living wage. And let alone people, skilled workers, goodness, my daughter works in the childcare field. It's horrific what we are expecting people to live on in that field. 
And she has an AA degree, and then she went and got her CDA, which is a sort of child development associates, and still makes well under $14 an hour. And mm. that, yeah, I think that's where we have to refocus, not on what are these people doing wrong, but why don't we? Why don't we pay people appropriately? And in, a, in an era of monumental and record-breaking profits for businesses and corporations, and it's not all, we can talk about small businesses and things like that, but the majority of large businesses are doing extremely well that there is a path. There is an economic path where all people could have enough success to be able to have a life where they thrive and not just survive, but it's going to take political and personal will to make that happen. And it's a mountain I've been trying to move for a long time. You lobby personally. I do sometimes. This year, my big focus was on the eviction expungement bill. And I laugh because I really thought this was so easy. I thought we had some good backing from both sides. It makes complete sense. So for people who don't know, in Iowa, if someone files an eviction against you, it sits on your record forever, whether you were evicted or not. And also other consumer debt, most of it is vanishes after about seven years, but not an eviction. So it was to make sure that people who are not evicted, that had a filing, that that get off their record right away, and that all people have it fall off within, we originally said three years, five years. We just wanted some time for it to fall off. And it didn't make it through the second funnel. And it it felt very much there was a very small number of people who stymied that bill. But anyway, that was one of my passions this year because it felt like an easy win that everyone could get behind and it still didn't make it. I work on all the issues that have direct impact, like this SNAP Medicaid bill. I have probably never written as many emails as I have this year about that, but it still feels unheard. I was not at the Capitol this week when they had the hearing on it, but I was assured that there were many more people there to speak against. But when they took public comments, they decided they had everyone sign up for whether they were for or against, and they alternated the speakers. So even though the list of against was much smaller, by the end of the hearing, it sounded like it was even. And that felt purposeful and it doesn't feel like they really want to hear what constituents and interested parties have to say. And it does feel like we're trying to fix, when it comes to the SNAP and Medicaid bill, we're trying to fix a problem that doesn't exist. I've yet to see anything that suggests that there's any sort of massive fraud or any sort of unsavory things happening. And so, again, we're fixing something that's not broken. I mean, it's broken in other ways, but not this way. think it's an American thing. I really do. This idea that we are we need to be better than someone else. 
and we need to figure out where we are in that caste system and always feel a little better that there's someone else that is either not as good off as I am or that doesn't deserve it as much as I do. So I think that was a bill of goods that all Americans have bought into. And we see people come in in poverty that are on every line on the political spectrum. But I would say for the most part, people that we serve do not have the bandwidth available to them to be politically active or to even consume very much information about what's happening politically because they're they're busy just trying to get food. They're, they don't really have time to even engage or understand it. And it feels futile. The folks that I see that are neutral, I think they feel that they have no power or no control. I think that's another issue we have around having such an unbalanced approach right now is we don't hear that much from people who are in the bottom third economically because they're, they have been, their power has been removed or they don't have time to exercise that power. If you spend an hour trying to get a food pantry in a day, you're not going to have an hour to go stand in line to vote, nor have the time to unwrap what any of that means. And one of that, one of those sales is that taxes are bad, right? The idea that any sort of tax is harmful to all people, that message has been consumed and it has people absolutely believe it and they get crazy. I belong to a group. I live in Ankeny, Iowa, and I belong to a Facebook group called People of Ankeny. And if you don't have that where you, whatever community you're in, uh, yeah, if they, I'm sure they have a people of Des Moines somewhere or something. The outrage when people got their assessments was amazing. Oh, yeah. And not only amazing, because, yeah, it was rough and it's it, it's an interesting thing. But I was joking. We wanted to appraise that high, but we sure don't want it to assess that high. And people right. not even understanding mm-hmm. that's not all that's not all going to get taxed. That's yeah. not they don't even understand how their property taxes were. They are outraged by it. And the same thing happens with the families we serve is they hear the taxes are going up and they think it's going to hurt them or they think it's going to a new social program is going to help someone else, but not them. And yeah, as we're talking, maybe that's our number one goal is to try to get Americans back in caring more about the we than the me. Where do you think the Democratic Party has dropped the ball? <laughs> Again, I'm going to speak personally on this yes. one, just so I'm very clear. This has nothing to do with impact and only has to do with Ann Bacon. The Democratic Party, there's a few things. I really want to go back to Bill Clinton is where I would go because of my work and the fact that the Welfare Reform Act was one of the most damaging pieces of legislation to the social safety net and people in poverty. And our that party as a whole didn't even notice. They didn't. They either didn't see it, they didn't understand it, they didn't want to. But if you look at the typical platform, that should have never even been a consideration. I also think that, and I don't know where this comes from, I think, is it because of the unbalanced media? Is it because as human beings, we're just starting to polarize? I'm not sure. But the party itself has polarized very much. It's a little bit hard to distinguish. If you have a far left Democrat and a far right Democrat, it's hard to believe they're in the same party. So I think that inability to find the magnetic middle is damaging. It's been fun. I've got daughters who are adults, and my youngest daughter is extraordinarily politically savvy, and she 
she she often talks about revolution and that maybe it would be better if we elected someone so far right that it caused a revolution. Mm. But I'm we don't We're have there. to go that far. I know. Yeah. Yeah. We are. Yeah, you should interview her. But the, yeah, she has that. The, and so there's no coalescing. There's no bringing enough people together to be able to move against. It's probably what made Trump work is there was something about him that coalesced enough people that it was hard to it. When I remember the first debate on during the Republican primary in 2015, I believe it was, the number of people across that stage just tells you, you're like, this isn't going to work because all these people are going to split this up. And I don't think we're very strategic. And it's a another oddity, but is that we have way more people that can't meet their basic needs now than we did then. But the government is not measuring that. They're measuring something else that's illogical around it. And so we've been able to hide that. I was asked recently by someone who works with me, why can't we get that federal poverty rate changed? Again, politically speaking, whatever administration changes that will be forever known as the person that increased poverty by three to four times. And so it Again, people are about optics, they're about how's it going to look, not about what's the right thing to do. So that measure of poverty is the first thing and why it may not look as dire as it actually is. The other thing is the escalator escalation of incomes and how inequitable that has been. If you use the most basic of basic needs assistance, which is TANF, used to be called welfare or AFDC, or that cash check people could get to be assisted. In 1989, I came back to Iowa with a, as a single mom to one child, and I received <coughs> TANF, which at the time was called AFDC. And if I see if I can get the number right, I think it was right around $360 to $380 a month. That number is the same today. If you're a single mom with a child in Iowa, that's the top amount of cash assistance that you could be awarded. Ah, it is not the same. And so we know it, we know about inflation. We know about housing costs being through the roof. We know just the cost of childcare. All those things have just grown and grown. And if you look at the overall escalation of wages, it looks pretty good. But when you go down and you look again at the bottom third, you're not going to see the same trajectory of income increases. And so, to, for an old catchphrase, the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. Back to SNAP and what it's going to mean to, say, people who live in the homes of Oak Ridge. Let's say Des Moines Public School students. So mm -hmm. What's that going to be on the Des Moines Public School students? I don't have that math done yet. I've seen a few things, but partly we don't know because we don't know. We do know that it's fact that whenever you make it more complicated to apply for assistance, fewer people get approved for assistance. We know the more you require people to check in and reapply and have to do things in the middle of the year, the more people that fall off because life gets in the way and they don't get it done. We know with the means testing against vehicles and savings, that will knock people off. So we know it will. The true number of how many people that is, we're not sure yet. There's no doubt that it'll happen. The other thing that will happen is it will drive up need for the rest of our food assistance network. So we have other ways we help families, right, other than SNAP. We run two food pantries, 
and we belong to the DMARC network, and we see it all the time. Our numbers increased in March by almost 60% between March of last year and March of this year. So we, and some of that's because we reduced the amount of SNAP people we're getting. And we know that kind of loss on SNAP rolls just increases the pressure in the nonprofit community and in the arena that doesn't have the same leverage that federal SNAP dollars do. So I think it'll be twofold with the just the negative effect it has on families and then the trickle effect it then has on the rest of the food system. One more follow-up, and then I'll turn it over to Reka. But based on your own personal experience of living on the edge, what do you think the real human cost is going to be? Oh, wow. That is such a great question. And there's some research coming out now about a term called weathering. And I'm just becoming aware of it. And it's about what happens to humans that are put under ongoing economic stress and how that wears away at all the things that we need. We love people with grit. We love people with that are resolute. We love people with dig down, all these things. But the weathering effect of poverty eats away at that and eats away at people's physical health. There's a lot of great stuff on the social determinants of health that, that talk about that. But the ongoing cost of allowing so many people to struggle financially and then the continuing piling on, it's bad enough, but now we're going to make it harder to get SNAP or we're going to make it harder to keep getting SNAP. That, that will no doubt have an even higher weathering effect. This idea that it prompts people to work harder or to go to work, that, that's such a false narrative that it's that SNAP in any way keeps people from working is a little really almost a pathological thought. It's just illogical. The only reason it would keep people from working is if they're afraid to get above 130% because they'll lose their benefit. I'd be for let's expand that benefit so people can work more and still get food. But it, yeah, there's new measures people are working on to figure that out. But in a current environment where our leadership does not believe that the folks that are being harmed don't deserve to be harmed in some way, <laughs> I don't know that it'll matter to them that that this has a long-term toll on children and their families, but I care. You clear, you you appear to care, so that's good. <laughs> you see disproportionate poverty among people of color. Yeah, absolutely. American and immigrant. Uh, absolutely. And we see disparate impact across our programs in different ways. The largest disparate impact we've ever seen in a program was when we had the floods in 2018. We had a large-scale flooding event in Des Moines, which really impacted low-income people. We served, I think, 60% of the people we served were people of color in a community where it has nowhere near that split normally. On our regular work in Polk County, we're, I think, about 40% people of color. So that's obvious, that disparate impact. It was worse during the pandemic. The other group we see is women with children. That's a big one. And then seniors. There is definitely a an issue around our senior citizens' ability to consistently meet their needs. But yeah, it's very black and white again, mathematics that show how how much harder this is for. And for so can you break that down as to why 
people of color were suffering more? Were they not getting the same kind of assistance, outreach as white people? Yeah, the flooding was the most interesting just because it was so obvious that where housing and whether it's rental or ownership, housing is in floodplains because it's people of means don't live there. And so it it is the most risk-induced housing location. And so then we can see it with the floods. The other thing is the way life has been going here in, in Iowa for people of color is the the employment people are already utilizing, especially during the pandemic, a lot of service industry, a lot of gig kind of work that was affected so quickly. Those that don't provide benefits or don't provide any sort of time off. Or I love Disney. I love Walt Disney World. Walt Disney World laid off. They, they didn't even lay them off first. They furloughed him. They paid all of their staff for months not to work. That didn't happen. <laughs> and most of the jobs that people were working in Iowa, places just didn't pay them and had nothing. And We have a gray economy or a shadow economy, whatever you want to call it, where people work a lot under the table, work for cash. And those, it was really hard for some of those people to get unemployment or they wouldn't even apply for unemployment because of the nature of their work. Again, the type of work, the availability of work and the effects of systemic racism on people's position at any given moment in our economy set those folks up. So are you saying, sorry, just to clarify that there are more people of color working in these services? jobs than white people? I believe so. I Again, this is not my area of expertise, but when we looked at the people that we were serving, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, what kind of roles they had, that mm-hmm. is what we were hearing about. But to be super frank, it's not like we saw a lot of people from Principal Financial coming in because they couldn't make ends meet during the pandemic. Our staff, we could gather notebook computers, send them home, mm-hmm. pick them up on wireless, and they're working. Uh, looking at those fields where people work where that was not an option and the impact that had. That was one of the things that I found most discouraging about our state, stopping pandemic unemployment sooner than most states, stopping mm-hmm. pandemic SNAP assistance, and not utilizing pandemic rental assistance. There, there were a lot of things that the state had at its, at its fingertips that they just chose not to use. Yeah. Some states that you think are doing it right. I think, sadly, right now, it is difficult across our nation. I can't point to any around a strong, vibrant safety net, because like I said, the federal government really messed that up. But I would say if you looked at any of the states that continued the pandemic unemployment as long as they could, who expended their emergency rental assistance, who allowed the SNAP benefit to last as long as possible. I said, when you find those states, they're at least leveraging the federal dollars they have. And yeah, we didn't do any of those things. Talk about the kind of money that was turned down that could have helped low-income people. Yeah, the money I'm most aware of is the rental assistance program because we administered that for Polk County and the city of Des Moines. Iowa knew for they whatever the reason, they were going to have carryover money that they were going to lose out of the first round of emergency rental assistance. And the county did go to them and ask, and they did push down about $55 million of that. But when they were approached around the second round of ERAP, they, we knew they had $89 million that was going to have to be turned back to the Treasury. They declined. They could have appropriated it all 
to Polk and Lynn County if they wanted to. They could have just called Treasury and said, we went $50 million to Polk and $30 million to Lynn. They could have done that, but they opted not to, and they opted to allow the Treasury to claw it back. We were able to recoup some of it. So far, I think the county has recouped about 24, but that was out of 44 that was originally pulled. But that other $20 million was distributed to other states and other jurisdictions. It's just gone forever. So that was the one that I tracked the most closely. And I do know that we're super harmed by that across the state and never given the opportunity to be able to get out of the holes that were dug during the pandemic. I don't have the dollar amounts on what was lost in unemployment insurance, but it was a lot. And of course, SNAP. And yeah, it would be a great number to have the amount of money that was turned back. Yeah. One final question for me, if you could communicate to somebody who thinks this cutback of SNAP and all of these programs is a good thing because it'll get people out to work that are lazy, what would you like them to understand? I would ask them to spend 15 minutes, 15 minutes determining the truth to what the outcome will be. We know that when we stopped the unemployment early, it did not increase the number of people back in the workforce. We know when we stopped the earlier SNAP assistance that had extra SNAP benefits going out to families, it did not increase the number of people going back to work. So there is nothing that I can find that suggests that making it harder for people to get and stay on SNAP will increase our workforce. The other thing I would like them to consider, this is something they can consider as they're mulling through their life, is, but why? That should always be the question, but why? If people are not going to work, but why? People aren't able to, people want SNAP, why? To Get underneath that a little bit. And the other thing would be, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to convince people of this, but saving the state money should not always be the number one goal. The health and security of the people who live here should be pretty high up on that on that list. And the people, and I do want them to know, the people they hurt the most are children. They're not going to work anytime soon and seniors, and they're not going to work anytime soon. So the number of people that are harmed the most are people who can't even work. So that would be my ask of them to learn a little more. When do Um, these cuts, latest cuts, go into effect? If they happen, I would assume it'll take time because Mm -hmm. they... Part of the legislation is about putting in place these computerized methods for people to apply. So I, I assume that's just going to take time to put it into place. Yeah. And I haven't figured out when it would be, but it would probably be within a year, maybe faster. It depends on how much is already there. One thing I learned mm-hmm. through the, the watch of the government reorganization is lots of times these things are ready. <laughs> they're ready. And they're just, they just need to get it approved and then it's going to happen. So we don't know really how far down the road this has already started. Here's a little anecdote that has nothing to do with the current situation. Uh-huh. But my own personal experience was I can still remember the very last time I used a food stamp. When I was connected, it was called food stamps. And it was called that because they actually came in a little book. They weren't really the size of snap. They were about the size of a dollar bill, but they were in there. And if you made a mistake and pulled one out when you couldn't use it, you then had to rely on the 
graciousness of the grocery store because they're not supposed to take any that are not in the book. Um, And my last $10 food stamp was not in the book and they wouldn't take it. And there was nothing magical that had happened. I got a new job. I got off SNAP, but there was weeks there where I was still really struggling. But even that $10 in my life, when I was at that economic stage, made a tremendous difference. And it was soul crushing. But yeah, like I said, that's a core memory for me now. It's locked in there. Me standing in that store with that $10 food stamp and then not willing to take it. And it's because it was loose and not. It was loose. Yeah. It's yes. Yeah. Those are the kind of rules that are just that we're talking about putting in place that will just for no reason. reason. What a fascinating, if terribly depressing. (laughs) Welcome to my life. That's that's all I do. But I appreciate any chance to talk about it. I also enjoy being able to help people understand where my work passion intersects with my personal passion, but it's been a wild ride. I can't only imagine what it's like day to day dealing with some of this stuff. We really applaud you and thank you. How do you stay grounded? Again, personally speaking, it's because I'm so pissed off all the time. I'm so angry. I am so angry that if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would not stop because my anger came out of experiences I had when I was in poverty and tried to deal with the human service world and said, I got to change this because this is ridiculous. And I'm still angry. And that that keeps my fire going. And there are days that are harder than others. There are stories that are super difficult. But every time I think my life is hard, I remember the people we're serving and I know that they are, what they're dealing with is much more difficult. I still get to go home and enjoy my Netflix and my salty snacks. That's salty. Perfect. Oh, no. gosh. Thanks so much, Anne. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Great you. Great so with you. For your time. Just look around at where we've been. The more we lose, the less we win. Come on and make me smile again. Oh, I.